Praise God. We've also got the Spirit of God indwelling us. Amen? Amen. Well, Luke 13, we'll see what happens this morning. Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. You may have never heard of this man, but if you had been a Christian in the mid to late 20th century, you were probably familiar with the name G. Campbell Morgan. Morgan was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. Martin Lloyd-Jones would be his assistant and then follow Morgan as the pastor of that church, which was so influential in the last century. Following the tragedy of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, Morgan ascended his pulpit there at Westminster Chapel And sprinkled in among his remarks that day, Morgan mentioned the fact that many people were saying that the earthquake in San Francisco and the fire that followed ought to be seen as the direct judgment of God upon that city. Now, as far as I've been able to determine, Morgan didn't necessarily agree with that assumption, and I... I did find it interesting that there were those who were there at the early part of the 20th century who were drawing that conclusion. It seems some things never change. No matter what generation we may live in, we are often quick to make judgments. At least we are tempted to whether it be earthquakes or hurricanes or 9-11, we often hear those who claim to speak for God drawing very dogmatic conclusions regarding God's purposes in those kinds of situations. As we come to this passage this morning, we find our Lord Jesus challenging his generation to stop making assumptions concerning what they think they knew 
about God's plans and purposes. In doing this, he makes reference to two tragedies which were contemporary to Jesus and his listeners. The first was a political and religious conflict which resulted in the murder of some Galileans while they were at worship. And the second was a fallen tower which resulted in the deaths of 18 human beings. Jesus followed this with the parable of the unfruitful fig tree, which was given as a warning to try to sober up his generation. Try to get them to be thinking about their own relationship with God and to get them to ask the question, since God has not called me to be a judge, what does he want from me? Verses 1 through 5, we find these two contemporary events referenced by Jesus. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Over and over again, as we watch our Lord moving toward the cross, and remember, that's what's going on here. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem He's making his way to the cross. And as he does this, we can hear these words whispered in the background. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. That's what he's in the process of doing. Few of Jesus' contemporaries understood his purpose. Not even his disciples really understood it until after the resurrection. But we need to keep that in mind because that was what was in God's heart. And that is what is in the heart of the Son of God. That theme just kind of wraps itself around this passage. At this moment, our Lord is still standing with his disciples among the multitude. He's been speaking to his disciples. The multitudes have been listening in. He has just confronted them. Look at verse 56. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? saying this is the time when your long-promised Messiah has been sent to you for the last three years. The rulers of the nation of Israel and the majority of the people have been rejecting me. If you don't change your minds about me, if you don't repent, you will be dragged before the judge, found guilty of rejecting me as your Messiah, and you will pay the consequences. As Luke describes this to us, some people approach our Lord, who was known by everyone to be from the region of Galilee. 
And they asked him what they thought about this event that had happened. These Galileans who had come down to worship and who were slaughtered there in Jerusalem as they were offering sacrifices at the the temple, slaughtered by Pilate's soldiers. Now, Pilate was governor of Judea and Samaria. He had a reputation for being inflexible and merciless and obstinate and cruel and unjust. And he clearly lacked common sense in handling the delicate problem of the strained relationship between the Jews and their Roman occupiers. Now, it might help to get some background to this event. Galileans were always liable to get involved in political trouble because they were a rather volatile group. They were known to be so. Just about this time, Pilate had been involved in some serious trouble. He had decided rightly that Jerusalem needed a new and improved water supply. Jesus is talking about a political event, not just a religious event. He proposed to build this aqueduct, and to finance it with certain money collected from the temple. And so the background of the death and the murder of these Galileans is an issue of church and state. The very idea of spending temple money for something like that enraged the Jewish people. And mobs gathered... And when those mobs gathered, Pilate instructed his soldiers to mingle with the people, wearing cloaks over their uniforms to disguise their identities. And at a given signal, they were to fall on the mob and disperse them. That was done. But the soldiers exceeded their orders. And instead of simply dispersing the crowd... Many of the people from Galilee who had been present there were killed. So our Lord is responding to the question that is posed to him in verse 1. And he responds by saying there in verse 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? People have had the false notion, at least since the days of Job, that the greater the sin of someone, the greater the calamity which is going to befall them. And if the calamity does befall someone, it clearly must be because they have sinned. You go back to Job, and you find it there. And that has been the so-called logical implication that people have drawn ever since. Of course, it is not logical, is it? Jesus says it's not true. Go back to Job. Eliphaz the Temanite asked Job there as he suffered said, is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? Jesus' disciples knew the book of Job, certainly. And yet, 
They didn't really get it. You come up to the Gospel of John in chapter 9, and Jesus and his disciples are walking along past this man who had been born blind. And what is the question which the disciples posed to Jesus? Jesus, this guy, he's, he's blind. He's been blind all his life. Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? For the disciples, those were the two choices. That was it. Somebody is at fault here. If this guy has been born blind, it's because somebody has sinned. And this is the judgment of God. Of course, Jesus goes on to explain to them that it had nothing to do with sin. Jesus gave them a more difficult explanation to understand. This isn't about sin. It's about the sovereignty of God. This man was born in darkness and has spent his entire life in darkness so that the power of God might be demonstrated in him. You later find out the guy's about 40 years old. 40 years old, blind, has to go to the temple and sit there begging for alms in order to survive. And Jesus says, all part of the plan, guys. All part of the plan. God is going to be glorified through this man. And he was because Jesus healed him and God's power was seen in that that healing. But can you imagine? You, you, You have difficulty that you're dealing with in your life? And the temptation is to say, I really don't want to attribute this to God. God must be busy, must have other things on his mind. Jesus comes and just calls us back to the absolute exhaustive sovereignty of God, even in 40 years of blindness. And it had nothing to do with what this guy did or what his parents did. God determined that he was going to glorify himself in this man's blindness. And so now, these people have moved theological logic over this atrocity which took place in the temple. They have declared that you know, what seemed obvious to them. God directed the soldiers of Pilate to pick out the greatest sinners of all the people who happened to be there at the temple that day. That must have been what happened. These were just horrible people. We don't really like the Romans, but these guys must have been pretty bad too. And they missed everything. They missed mercy. They missed grace. They missed the sovereignty of God. They missed the lessons that they should have drawn for themselves. The Lord rejected their ideas completely. He rejected that false concept that physical disasters are an indication of wickedness and evil. 
Or, on the other hand, right, because if you're going to say that, you've got to go the other way too. That blessing, joy, the good things in life, must be commensurate to one's righteousness. That's not so much right either. The Lord rejected all of this. And goes on to explain in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus, what about all these people that Pilate killed there at the temple while they were offering sacrifices? And Jesus responds, you, repent. And I'd be standing there saying, that's that's not what I asked. (laughs) But Jesus does that so often. (laughs) Just ignores what the other person's saying and tells them what they need to hear. Unless... You repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, this was a warning given earlier by John the Baptist as he addressed the Pharisees. Luke chapter 3. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Our Lord had preached the good news of the kingdom of God, and he had healed the sick all over Galilee. And most of the Galileans had rejected him and his message. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were already in the process of spiritually perishing. Then came a day when there was no more time to repent because they were killed. And Jesus is saying, but you who are standing here in front of me alive, you still have time to repent. The issue is not who is the greater sinner. The issue is that you're all sinners. And you all need to repent. That's the reality. You have a limited amount of time. Not all of us are going to match our beloved Muriel. Some of us will fall far short. And we are called to repent. Because we don't know how much time we have. Not one of these Galileans woke up that morning saying, this is it. This is my last day on earth. Not one of them. The Lord could see not only the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel some 40 years away, but also the eternal destruction of the lives of the individuals standing before him. 
And if you want to divide up this passage, that's how you do it. These two examples that are given, the application is to the individual. Jesus' discussion to follow of the fig tree, that's about the nation, as we will see. And so, someone else comes along. Well, Jesus addresses a different issue, I should say. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So Jesus just adds to it. He says, you think these Galileans who were murdered, you think that's a problem. Let me give you another one. People innocently going about their lives and a tower falls on them. When I was younger, I just got out of college. I was working for a little while in Manhattan. Hadn't spent a lot of time in the city before that. I was a suburban boy from New Jersey. And I'm looking up (laughs) at these tall buildings. And unfortunately, as I was doing that, my boss came walking by. He mocked me for, you know, being one of those suburban boys who was not used to the buildings in Manhattan yet. Can you imagine one of those buildings just falling on you? That's what happened. That was, you know, obviously the tower wasn't as big as anything we have now, but... This was a tower that people were walking by every day for who knows how long. And they had gotten so used to it, they were very much unlike me, they didn't even pay attention to it. Nobody's looking up at it. And while they're walking by, one particular day, here it comes, collapses right on them. And 18 people are dead. This was a tower built inside the southeast portion of Jerusalem by the wall near the Pool of Siloam. And apparently, obviously, there was some kind of structural failure. The tower suddenly came down upon the crowd, and once the dust settled and the bricks were removed, some 18 bodies were recovered from the rubble. And again, this this false notion that the hand of God had judged these 18 people because of their personal sin, that would have been prevalent. That's what everybody would have been thinking. And our Lord challenges that notion again, and he questions the crowd. Do you think they were worse than everybody else who lived in Jerusalem. And he issues a second warning. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is no difference between them and you. These 18 had no time to repent. The people to whom Jesus was speaking, they had some more time. We have more time because we're here. 
And we're listening to the message of Jesus as he speaks not only to them, but to us. Life is a vapor. If you think you've got all the time in the world, let me remind you of a contemporary example of what Jesus is describing. It seems that the only reason we know about it is because everyone wants to use it to make a political point. But I want to use it to make a spiritual point. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a bridge that collapsed right outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. People were just driving along, as many of them did, day after day after day, no doubt, going back and forth across this same bridge. But on that day, the bridge they probably never gave a second thought to dropped out from underneath them. We're thankful that, so far as I have heard, no one was killed, but there were many injured and hospitalized. Can you imagine the suddenness with which that happens. One second, all is well. The next second, you're faced with the possibility of death. Jesus wants us to understand that we are living every moment on the knife's edge, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done. Generations past understood this far more than we do. We have medicine and hospitals and ambulances. We have all kinds of things to keep us alive when something goes wrong. A couple of hundred years ago, there was no such thing. And death was always present. The possibility of death was always a part of life. And now we need to be reminded that nothing has really changed. When our time comes, medicine doesn't matter. Hospitals don't matter. Doctors don't matter. Our God has appointed our days. Jesus wants us to know that the realization that life might end or be permanently altered at any moment should drive us not to conjecture about God's plans and purposes, not to paralyzing fear and despair, but rather to repentance. And so Jesus says to the crowds and to us, repent. I performed all those miracles. I fulfilled prophecies. I'm I'm casting out demons, not as your leaders have have said by the power of Satan, but by the power of God. I am the promised Messiah. I am your long-awaited Savior and Lord. But if you reject me, I'll be your judge. Unless you come to terms with that reality, all of you from the least to the greatest will suffer the same fate as those 18 Jews in Siloam. You will experience not only physical death, but also spiritual death. And you'll be separated forever from your creator. We need to note that God may allow some atrocities and disasters to fall on certain people or nations as a temporal punishment for their particular wickedness. That has happened. God has done that. You look at Sodom. 
people of Sodom utterly destroyed because of their wickedness, or the nation of Israel itself, who forsook the Lord, followed after idols, and they were taken into captivity by Assyria and then Babylon. And it is God who did that. It was his intention, it was his purpose to bring judgment upon ancient Israel. But not all atrocities and disasters are to be viewed as God's visitation because of some special sin, but rather as what is called the wrath of God, which means that God allows natural consequences within a fallen humanity and a fallen world to come to fruition. Let's not forget that, brothers and sisters. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes the tragedies that take place are because we live in a fallen world. We don't really need to look beyond that. Of course, God is accomplishing all kinds of things with everything that he does. But essentially, this is our world. There are earthquakes and hurricanes. Bridges give out because everything is declining. Everything is wasting away. The real issue, though, as Scripture points out, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And God will one day deal with all of that. They will come when those who have repented and have trusted in Christ, will no longer live in a fallen world, but a new world. New heavens and the new earth. And it will be wonderful. There will be no more murders. And there will be no more towers falling. And there will be no more bridges dropping out from under you. There will be no, no more sickness, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. But I don't have to tell you, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Which, from one perspective, is a good thing. Because it means there are more to be brought in to the family. There are more who will be brought to repentance. This is why we continue the unfinished task. We proclaim what Jesus proclaimed. Repent and believe in the Son of God. And you will escape judgment. Our Lord was directing the attention of these people to the reality that their sin was going to bring inevitable judgment. He wanted these people, as well as every one of us, everyone that we come in contact with, He wanted us all to come to terms with who Jesus is. 
and in his love and his mercy, he may use some tragic event to draw you to his son. To cause you to come to grips with your sin and your need. He is the Savior. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. No other name is given from heaven among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus is challenging the people to understand what God desires of them. First, a repentant heart. But secondly, a fruitful life. Look at verses 6 through 9. He began telling them a parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The Lord's about to explain why this generation is worthy of judgment. And he uses this common example of a vineyard and a fig tree. There's a man who owned a vineyard. He had a vineyard keeper whose task it was to make sure that the vines and the trees produced fruit. The fig tree and the grapevine are both used in the Old Testament as metaphors for Israel. Isaiah had written a song to that effect some 700 years earlier. Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around it, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also carved out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, Isaiah goes on to say, You inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned nor hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds not to rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, a cry for help. And God is prophesying the judgment that would come upon his own people, his own vineyard, because they did not bear fruit. In Jesus' parable, when the owner came to the tree in its fruit-bearing season, he likewise found no fruit. It was foolish to keep any fruit-bearing tree if it didn't bear fruit in season. Better to cut it down and plant a new tree in the hope that this new tree would bear fruit. But the vineyard keeper intercedes, let it alone. Give me another year. 
Now, the owner is clearly Jehovah. The vineyard is the world. The fig tree is Israel. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, Hosea says. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. The fig tree represents Old Covenant Israel. And it is bearing no fruit from the beginning of its creation. God had planted Israel as a fig tree in his vineyard so that they would produce the fruit of righteousness and justice. So that they would be a light to the nations by which the nations might come to Jehovah. And they had failed to fulfill their purpose. They were a fig tree without figs. They were using up space. Matthew describes this very thing as he describes the ministry of John the Baptist. It says, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able to, from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And now, three years later, verse 7 says, And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree. Three years after John the Baptist spoke those words, now it would be just a few short months, as Mark tells us, that Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem where he would be rejected by the leaders of the people. And he would then go into the nearby city of Bethany. Mark says in Mark 11, And on the next day when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. There is spiritual famine in the nation of Israel. They had the leaves of a fig tree, but they had produced no figs. And God was going to deal with this fruitless tree. And he was going to deal with it in a couple of ways. One of the ways you see in Romans chapter 11. When Paul is describing this transition from the old covenant people of God to the new covenant people of God. And all of the dead branches... Of the tree. The dead branches which belonged to Old Covenant Israel, they were all cut off. And if you are in Christ, then you and I were grafted in to that tree. Right? But another aspect of this is going to come one generation after Jesus. When God brings down the armies of Rome against Jerusalem and destroys it, raises it to the ground, including the temple, 
and the inhabitants would be taken into captivity once again. You and I are what happened in the next year. As God dealt with the unbelieving nation, cut down that fig tree, cut off those dead branches, but he grafted in something new, a new covenant people, made up not only of the genetic descendants of Abraham, but all those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are the recipients of this. And God is still doing this work as he sends us out to declare, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? We are reconciled to God and judgment is no longer upon us. The wrath of God is no longer ours. This is what our Lord is calling us to this morning. To go and to walk in the good works that he has set before us. Fruit. The world around us is filled with men and women and children who are perishing. And who may not have another day. They are in need of spiritual food and they don't even know it. And our Lord has sought, has seen fit to meet that need through you and I. This is the mission. This is the task. If you have come to repentance, then continue in a life of repentance. If you have not come to repentance, heed the word. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have heard that word and you have believed it, go and tell everybody else. That's the task. Tell them before it's too late. Father, Make us messengers, ambassadors of reconciliation. Father, give us a burden for those who may not have another day that they might know, that they might hear, that they might repent and believe, that they might escape. This, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.